If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, and we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. Um, and so if you don't have your Bible with you or don't have a Bible, there should be one in, in front of you or beside you or somewhere around a, a black hardback, and it's going to be on page 828. And we'll start reading there and we'll read all the way through the end of chapter 23, which is on the, the, other, the next page, page 829. Um, and it's a, it's a lot. It is a, a large chapter, and I'm going to be fighting myself constantly to slow down. So, so just be forewarned. I know some of you are thinking, you do that every week. You are a fast talker every week, and I realize that. I'm going to be extra intentional this morning to try and not go super fast, but, but there's a lot to cover um, and, and I, I won't be able to address every single issue in chapter 23. My point is for us to get a big picture, and so we'll read that in a second. But, but as, we, as we come into chapter 23, I just want to, to remind you of the, the larger context of Matthew's gospel. This takes place in the middle of the Passion Week for Jesus. And so in a few days, he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's going to be handed over to the authorities. He's going to be put on trial. His, his death, his crucifixion and death are uh, pretty imminent and so leading up to that culmination, that climax, this section of Matthew's gospel has, has highlighted the tension, the growing tension between Jesus and the religious leaders, in, in this case, the scribes and Pharisees. And so from the beginning of Passion Week, when he enters on the donkey and people are worshiping him as the son of David, then he cleanses the temple, then he curses the fig tree, then he tells some really pointed parables that the religious leaders perceive he's telling about them and they, they intensify the desire to, to trap him or, or eliminate him or kill him. And so they, they, they come at him with some questions to trap him, these trick questions they think. And so, so this tension has been growing and, and chapter 23 comes as the culmination of this rising t- tension. And this entire chapter is Jesus pronouncing woe upon woe or judgment upon judgment against these scribes and Pharisees. This entire chapter is a chapter of condemnation showing their hypocrisy, their blindness, and their sin. In fact, many people read this and think there's no way this is original to Jesus. It's just too mean. But this is Jesus in his words for the hypocrisy of these leaders. And so as we come to this, it's really tempting for us to come at this chapter like we're watching a, a, one of the Rocky movies. You know, you know Sylvester Stallone, and now it's continuing with Creed, but we have these, these, these movies where there's the clear good guy and the clear bad guy. We're about to see Jesus come down hard on these bad guys with a fury of punches. We know what's coming, and it's easy for us to find comfort in saying, hey, we're on team Jesus. I'm glad he's on my team, and I'm glad I'm not like them. It's easy for us to to, to come to this chapter and walk away from this chapter with that mindset, but here's the thing. The tendencies, the very tendencies behind the Pharisees' hypocrisy and their blindness, the very tendencies that we see on display in Jesus condemning them are the same tendencies that tend to rear their ugly heads in hypocrisy and blindness among us, those who claim to follow Jesus. And so we have this chapter, not not just to let us know the, the issues of the opponents of Jesus, but to serve as a mirror into which we can look and see and examine ourselves. What, what are some ways that we're more like the opponents of Jesus than we are like Jesus? So we have to come away from this chapter more aware of our need for the cleansing work of Jesus, more aware of our hypocrisy. And so that's my hope, is that we, we come away from here recognizing our tendency and temptation to be like the Pharisees instead of rejoicing in the fact that we're not 
Because to rejoice in the fact that we're not Pharisees would actually condemn us as Pharisees because that's what they did. The prayer that Robert read, thank you God I'm not like that person or that person, that, that person. That's the Pharisee and that's, that's not the character of the follower of Christ. And so I want us to come into this examining ourselves. And so really there's going to be seven application questions throughout as we work through. And so I want you to write these down and they're in the first person for us to ask these questions. And at the end, we'll, we'll just have a, a time of just reflecting on those questions. Um, but let's, let's look at the passage. Let's read it together. I am going to read all 39 verses, and so stay with me. It may help you to follow along, um, or else you'll, you'll probably get lost in your, in your brain thinking about lunch or football or something like that. So if you have a Bible, follow along, and, and um, we will then pray and look through these. But Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others." For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts, and they love the best seats in the synagogues, and they love greetings in the marketplaces, and they love being called rabbi by others. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant." Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves." Woe to you blind guides who say, well, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and whoever swears by the temple swears by it and him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These ought to have been done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanliness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in those days, in the days of our fathers, we would never have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow, let's pray before we look at these verses. Father, give us wisdom to hear the truth of these verses. Give us wisdom to apply these verses to our own hearts. Create in us clean hearts, renew a steadfast spirit within us. We pray as a result of this passage this morning and our time in it. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, there, there's three sections, and, and so the three sections we're going to work through, I really could have just done no sections and said, here's the eight questions of application, but there's three sections, because I do think there's three sections that are, that are marked off by the audience that he's talking to. So, so if you notice, verse 1, he's addressing the crowds and disciples. So 1 through 12, he, he's warning his followers in the crowds to be warned. So that's what we'll look at first, be warned, verses 1 through 12. Then the, the major section, verses 13, all the way down through 36, it's the woes, the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. And so we'll see, secondly, woe to you, the verses 13 through 36. And then finally, he transitions to, O Jerusalem. So kind of a comprehensive uh, summary of all that he said in verses 37 through 39, O Jerusalem. And so that'll be the final section we'll look at. And so we're going to work through these one at a time, and, and again, there's going to be seven application questions interspersed throughout as we seek to apply this. So let's, let's look first there, be warned, verses 1 through 12. And so he begins warning these religious leaders. Look there at verse 1. He, he's warning his crowd, the crowds and his disciples who are following him, and he identifies two problems with the scribes and Pharisees. But before he brings up the problem, notice what he says in verse 2. He says, the scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat... So, do and observe whatever they tell you, but don't do the works they do. Right? So, so, these religious leaders, Jesus says they sit on the seat of Moses. Now, it's not to say that, that there was some, some old heirloom where Moses' seat had actually been preserved and the, the actual physical piece of furniture is what they're sitting on. No, he's referring to a place of authority, a seat of authority, which is the seat of Moses, which, which Moses gave the law and he was the representative between God and his people. And so, these religious leaders sat in their seat. They had received the law. And so they functioned as God's spokespeople, as those who've been given the law. So Jesus says, listen to them and what they say. 
I mean, these were the experts in the law. The, the, the constant focus of their study and teaching was the law of Moses. And yes, Jesus takes issue with some of their teachings and the implications and, and applications of their, their way of life. And in these situations, we would certainly say that they went beyond Moses or they misunderstood Moses. But in, in verse 2, Jesus, the statement is highlighting the continuity between, between Moses and himself. He's not coming to, to overthrow Moses. He's saying, Moses' seat has authority. You should listen to them to the extent that they represent Moses. And, and so he didn't come to undo the law. He came to fulfill the law, to expound the, the true intention of the law. And so he has to address the heirs, which is what he's going to do here. But he just wants to know, hey, they sit in a seat that should be respected because it's a seat of Moses. However, and here's the transition, don't do what they do. Here's the first warning, the first problem of the scribes and Pharisees is they preach, but they don't practice. They, they talk, but they don't walk. So be warned, Jesus says. What they say, what they profess is not matched by their lives. Their lips and their life preach different sermons. That's what he's saying. They, they tell you what to do, but they don't do it themselves. And so this is the problem, and this is what it means to be a hypocrite, to preach but not to practice, to pretend but not to be, really. They're, they're fake. They pretend to be one, one way, but underneath it all, deep down, they are not as they appear. They are an illustration of fake news, of, of proclaiming something that's just not true, and what they're proclaiming is, is, is their life. They're pretending to be one way, but they're not. And Jesus says, be warned. This is the essence of hypocrisy that he's going to condemn throughout chapter 23. They play a part. Their entire lives are one big game of dress-up. It's like your kids who have, who have a closet of costumes who they put them on and they pretend to be something else, but then they take it off. Well, the Pharisees put it on and never took it off. They go to the store in their costume. They go to the synagogue in their costume. They go to bed in their costume. They lived a life of hypocrisy, of pretend, of dress-up. And so Jesus is warning the crowds and his disciples not to be marked by the same sort of inconsistency. He calls his followers, preach and practice. Be consistent. Consistency, in this sense, is the enemy of hypocrisy. Now notice how Jesus proves his point in verse 4. They, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. So this burden, they just put it on people's shoulders, a heavy burden, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger to help them, their littlest finger. They won't even use their, their smallest body part to help these people bear the burdens that they themselves have placed on them. And so the Pharisees had, had put on a burden of rules and expectations and laws, heavy and hard to carry, hard to balance, which isn't wrong in and of itself, it is an issue, but the main issue, Jesus says, is they put that on you, but then they don't care to help you bear it. They themselves are not willing to move the burden with their finger. And so these Pharisees had developed an intricate system of laws and regulations, things that far exceeded what was required by Moses. And their whole intended purpose was, was to help people please God. We have the law and we're going to make all these extra laws so that you definitely don't break God's law. We're, we're trying to help you. But the problem was they laid these burdens and heavy requirements on these people and did nothing to help them bear the burden. In fact, they wouldn't do it themselves. And this practice makes one point very clear. Their, their concern wasn't for keeping the law. They didn't care to see people keep the law because they didn't help them do anything. 
They just loaded them over and over and over with burdens that they couldn't bear. And so they, they in practice, didn't care about the law being kept. Their words painted one picture, keep the law, it's important, you should do it, but their actions painted another. Their lives were marked by hypocrisy. There's no consistency. They were out of balance. And so the highlight, the principle here that that leads to the first question of application is simply this, am I fake? Am I fake? As we seek to apply this, the, the reality is that followers of Christ are called to live consistent lives. Our words and our deeds should match. If you're going to put it in an imperative form and not a question, the imperative would be stop pretending. Don't pretend. Christians are called to live consistent lives. Now, what I don't mean by that is that Christians are not allowed to sin. That's not what I mean. That's not the point. What I do mean is that Christians who pretend to be perfect, who hide and cover up and refuse to acknowledge their sin and wrongs, that is an inconsistent Christian. To pretend to be perfect. I'm not saying you have to be perfect. But if you pretend to be perfect, you're falling prey to Phariseeism. The hypocrisy of the Pharisees. I mean, think about it. A hypocrite is someone who pretends to be one thing when in reality he or she is another thing. That's the hypocrite. So someone who claims to be perfect or claims to be faultless while knowing that he or she is not, that's a hypocrite. That's the issue with these Pharisees, as we'll see throughout. They didn't care about loving God with their lives and actions. Instead, their driving motivation was they just wanted people to think that they were obeying and cared about loving God and were doing it. And so for the Christian, I mean, hear me, I'm going to make this really easy for you. We avoid this first charge. We live consistent lives. We avoid being fake by owning our weakness. We own our weakness. It's one thing to say, I'm perfect and I'm, I'm, I'm not a sinner. It's another thing to say, I'm following Jesus, I'm trying to be perfect, but I fall short and I struggle every day, right? This is consistency, we own our weakness. When we, if we freely confess and acknowledge our sin and weakness, when we sin and fall short, we're not guilty of hypocrisy because we know who we are and we're, we're open with that. We know our imperfections. We don't hide our sin. We don't deny or excuse our failures. Instead, we confess them. We bring them into the light and we own our weaknesses and failures. And so if you're a Christian, you cannot be guilty of hypocrisy if you freely and readily confess your sin. If you make very clear to anyone who would listen that you are prone to wander, that you're prone to leave the God you love. And so Christian, don't be fake. Uh, Own your weakness. His strength, in fact, is made perfect in your weakness. Christ came to Save the unrighteous, not the righteous. So don't pretend to be something you're not. Going back to chapter 23, notice the problem, another problem with the Pharisees in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. This is the second problem. All of their deeds, which I think would mean all of their acts of righteousness, all the things they do in public, all the things they do in the synagogue, were not driven by a love for God. But rather... It's driven by a desire to be seen. They love being seen by others, right? Which is directly related to the first problem. If you're a pretender, if you're not really who you say you are, you have to keep up the act. You have to make sure that you're doing things so that people think you are who you aren't. You have to make sure and always have your costume on. And this is what the 
scribes and Pharisees did. They did all of their deeds in order to be seen by others. Look at how he continues. They make their phylacteries broad, their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in synagogues and the greetings in the marketplace. They love being called rabbi. And all of these examples illustrate this same issue. All of these things were, were things that distinguished the Pharisees. They were symbols of their uniqueness, their exceptionalism. And they loved all of these things that marked them off as different. And so these things they loved were just superficial things, things that that surface level distinguished them. But there's no substance underneath. But they could go to the synagogues. They could sit in the places of, of best of honor, and they could be they could go to the, the, the public greeting places and, and be given these, these on, titles of honor. There didn't have to be anything underneath it. It's just who they were and their, their appearance conveyed, I need to respect that person. And they were, would be treated accordingly. And so they loved that. They could get the benefit without having the substance. That's what Jesus warns them, warns his followers against this. And he warns them against this by pursuing humility. Look at verse 8. He, he gives the, 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 con, the converse. So don't, don't be like them, but you don't be called rabbi. You have a teacher. In fact, you're all brothers. No, call no man father. You have a father, God the Father who's in heaven. Don't be called instructor, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so the point here, remember the context. In contrast to the scribes and Pharisees, he's just condemned with their love of being seen by others, being respected by others, being honored by others, being distinguished and set apart. Jesus says, you're not to be like that. Example, don't love recognition. Don't pursue being distinguished. Don't boast in your titles. I mean, we don't have to press these. We, actually, we should not press these prohibitions too strictly. For example, verse 9 doesn't mean that my children can't call me father. That misses the point here. The point, verse 11 and 12, Jesus says, the greatest, do you want to be great? You want to be respected and honored? Then be a servant, which is totally contrary to what the Pharisees were doing. They wouldn't serve anyone with their little finger. And so that's his point. To contrast those who love being called rabbi or love being called teacher or father or instructor, Jesus says, if you're my follower, you ought to love and rejoice in being called servant of all. So do that. Serve all. You want the title? That's your title. Boast all you want in that. Among the followers of Christ, we all bear the title of servant. All of us, a requirement of following Christ is dying to self and following him. And so we're all given the title of servant because that's the title he bore. But it's also the title that ensures that there's no confusion as to who's worthy of the honor and glory. That's reserved for God alone. And so application question here, am I proud? Am I proud? Hypocrites love the praise of man. They don't care about pleasing God. They don't care about the approval of God, but do all things in order to be seen by others. And underneath the love of praise and recognition is the ugly sin of pride. The hypocrite loves a form, any form of religion that is merely external. 
Just give me the laws to keep. If I don't have to do the hard work of, of my, my desires and, and underneath it, if I, can just, if I can just fit your standard, I'm all good for that. Hypocrites love forms of religion that, is, that are merely external. Because you can keep the rules. But also, you can convince everyone else that you're keeping the rules. The, the hypocrite loves being made much of. That's because the hypocrite loves himself more than anyone or anything else. And that's the fuel that drives the hypocrite, is love of self. I want to be seen as spiritual, as having it all together. And so for those who follow Christ, pride is our enemy. In fact, one of our greatest enemies is pride. Because pride drives us from Christ. Pride does not ever lead us towards Christ. Pride, independent self-love, is is anti-Christ. And so pride tells us, you're not that bad. Pride tells us, yeah, you measure up at least most of the time. Pride tells us, what others think about you, that's who you are. That's what's most important. So, so just make sure and, and, and be, appear to be a good neighbor or a good Christian. Or pride says, as long as my sins are secret and I'm the only one who knows, well, then, then I'm okay. And this type of pride is anti-Christian. In fact, this type of pride is an enemy of the gospel and robs the gospel of its power because Christ came to save proud sinners and turns proud sinners into humble followers. And and that's a work that the gospel does that is never done. And so we are constantly to pursue humility because that's who we are born again to be, servants of all and not lovers of self. And it's a work that will not allow us to live in a constant state of unrepentant pride. Well, we move into our second section after those two questions, we see Jesus shifting the woes from his, scri- his followers in the, the, the crowds to now the scribes and Pharisees. So let's look here, verses 13 through 36, these seven woes, let's walk through them. First woe, verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in, those following you, to enter. And so this first woe describes the utter failure of the scribes and Pharisees and their ability to accomplish their stated purpose, both for themselves and for those who would follow him. Remember, Jesus says, they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. I mean, what a tragic picture. Especially considering the aim of the ministry of the Pharisees was to lead people to God, to lead people to the kingdom and attempt to, to live lives pleasing to God. But as the recognized authorities of the day, these Pharisees represented God to his people in a way that had gone so far astray that the leaders themselves were shut out of the kingdom. They weren't getting there, much less anyone that was following them. And so these Pharisees missed the point. And the main way they missed it, as we've seen throughout the gospel of Matthew, is their inability to a refusal to listen to Jesus, to acknowledge him. They, they can't enter the kingdom because the kingdom is entered through Jesus and Jesus comes to say, the kingdom's here. I'm the king, come to me. And they say, no way. And so they miss the point. They're leading others away from the only way to the kingdom. And Jesus says, woe to you. You're shutting the door of, of heaven in people's faces. When Jesus is on the scene, these, these leaders are, are, as it were, closing their eyes and plugging their ears. Not listening to you, Jesus. Not listening. 
And in so doing, they are missing the kingdom of heaven themselves, which leads to the second woe, which is like it, verse 15. Woe to you, for you travel across sea and land, you go to great distances to make one single proselyte or follower. And when this single proselyte follows you, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. It's like the first in the sense that it condemns these religious leaders for failing to lead their followers where they said they were leading them. So at first, it's, it's, you're shutting the kingdom of heaven in their face, but here, you're making them children of hell. Both cases making the point that it doesn't end well for the Pharisees and those that are following them. In fact, the, the point seems to be that those who follow the Pharisees take it even further than the Pharisees did. Twice as much a child of hell as yourself. And so these Pharisees are condemned. They do whatever it took to get one follower only to gain that follower and lead that person away from heaven and straight to hell, which leads to the third application question. Am I leading astray? Or where am I leading? Put it another way. So religious hypocrites, the, the mark here is, is a concern with appearances and, and a concern with the praise of others that, that you want others to follow you in your own way. And you're so concerned with, with people following you that, that you lead them astray and you miss the mark when it comes to the final destination. The issue isn't where you say you're leading people or where you say you're going. The issue is where are you actually leading them? Where are you going? What path are you paving for your followers, your disciples, those who you're teaching and leading the point that Jesus drives home in these religious leaders is that their refusal to listen to him or to follow him will lead them straight away from the kingdom of heaven. They've missed it. And this air of leading astray is, is not disconnected from the charge of pride. Because if you're more concerned about yourself than others, uh, of making disciples of you, right? I follow Paulus. I follow Paul. That was the issue of the church in Corinth. But when you're more concerned about your name when you want to be made much of others, you, you miss the big picture. You lose sight of what matters and why you are making followers in the first place. Because at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's not about your namesake, your popularity. It's not even really ultimately about your usefulness. At the end of the day, it's where are you leading people? What direction are they going, those who follow you? Are they becoming more like Christ? Are they prioritizing and emulating things that, that make much of Christ? Or are they becoming more like me, especially in ways that I'm not like Christ? Am I creating a, a tribe of Nathan? I mean, as fathers, as, as grandparents, th th this is a pointed question. Where are you leading your children? Are you leading astray? Third woe. Verses 16 through 22, here in this third world, Jesus adds another critique. He calls them blind guides. He calls them hypocrites, and he'll continue to call them hypocrites, but now he adds you blind guides. And so this third issue, this third world, has to do with the oaths that the Pharisees were prone to make. So, so back in verse 5, or chapter 5, Jesus addressed the, the issue of oath-making. He said, you shouldn't take an oath at all. Just let your word be yes. Yes be yes, your no be no. So he's, he's not addressing the, the rightness of oath-keeping, making here. See chapter 5 for that. But here, he's just addressing the situation that's at work in the Pharisees. Because they would distinguish between oaths that had to be kept and oaths that didn't have to be kept. So they'd say, if you swear by the temple, it doesn't matter. But if you add 
gold of the temple, well, then you're bound. Or, or you can swear by the altar. It doesn't really matter. But, but by the gift on the altar, well, well, then you have to keep it. And Jesus wants them to know that, that the way they, they, were, they were able to squirm out of, of keeping an oath, the way they could find a loophole, as it were, and an excuse for not keeping a promise, is another clear example of their hypocrisy. And so in establishing this practice, right, these word games, the Pharisees proved they didn't care about honoring God. They didn't care about whether or not God expected them to keep their word. They only cared about the words that were used to make sure that it sounded pious without actually having to be pious. So they could say, I swear by the temple I'm going to do this. Ha ha, gotcha, fingers were crossed. They didn't swear by the gold of the temple so I don't have to do it. Right? They, they, they found loopholes so that they didn't have to keep their word. And that, that's the practice that the Pharisees had established. So they could say things that sounded pious, but not actually have to do it. It's a problem. Application question, do I mean what I say? Do I mean what I say? I mean, you could go back to Matthew chapter 5 and what Jesus said about oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But the question is, do I mean what I say? The reality is, as followers of Christ, our words matter especially words that have to do with religious duties or affirmations. Do you mean what you say? Do those who know you well believe you when you say what you say? Are you trustworthy? Are you reliable? Or do they know you can't be trusted to keep your word? You're just going off again. Don't, have, don't listen to a word. He doesn't mean it. Maybe for some of us, we, we, without thinking about it, we hear a problem, we tell someone, hey, I'll pray for you. Do you mean that? Do you mean it? Do you mean what you're saying? And there are more examples. But our words matter. And the Pharisees would say one thing but not mean it. I mean, this could also be applied in in how we respond when we're confronted with our own sin. Do we own our sin or do we excuse our sin? I mean, an example that came to my mind was the sin of gossip. And so when, when we're confronted with something we said or didn't say, which by the way, if, if, if someone lies or gossips or, or is spreading a falsehood about you, you take issue with something that someone says, you go to them. Go to them. Go to them and say, this is what I heard. Is this true? Go to them. Go to them. And so if someone comes to you and says, hey, you said this, what, what is our impulse? Well, well, I said that when I was behind his back. I, I mean, I know he wasn't there, but I would say it to his face, so I can say it behind his back. But that's an excuse and a loophole. doesn't make it right. Well, well it wasn't gossip be, because they're accepting prayer requests. And I just wanted people to pray for, for dear sister and her marriage problems. But that doesn't make it right. Right? What we say matters, and, and the tongue, hear me, the tongue, the, the untamed tongue is the clear enemy of the Christian, like, like the small rudder on the huge ship. It controls massive amounts of things, and the tongue is always going to be a source of temptation. James would call it a restless evil, full of deadly poison. Your tongue, my tongue, that's how James refers to it. So we ought to be aware of that and the tendency to be like the Pharisees and, and just say things we don't mean or, or get away with saying things that we shouldn't by creating loopholes. More, moving on, fourth woe, verses 23 and 24. Woe to you, 
You tithe mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have done all these things. You blind guides, you're straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So the issue has to do with the tithe, which literally means one-tenth. And so under the Mosaic law, the Israelites were commanded, it was part of the law, to give one-tenth. Right, that, that was part of your, your, your tithe, your income, you would give a tenth to support the ministry of the Levites and the upkeep of the temple. That was in Israel, Old Covenant, the tithe was required to, for the work of the temple. Now, that was under the Old Covenant, which sometimes leads to debate regarding the requirements of the New Covenant. That's not a New Covenant requirement. There's no place in the New Testament that says you must tithe. Hear me say that. Now, sometimes what will happen a church member or someone who's had these debates will will say, well, you're a pastor. Are Christians required to tithe? And do you know what I've learned to say because of a good friend of mine? Oh, no, dear Christian, you're not required to give one-tenth. You are free to give way more than that. (laughs) The point, New Testament Christians, we're not under the old covenant but we are required to be generous and give, right? Giving is the requirement for the Christian. Generosity is a requirement, and financial giving is an assumed activity of all Christians. And so that's part of it. But, but the scribes and Pharisees, their issue wasn't being too generous. Their issue was they're so focused on the particular details of giving, they neglected the most important requirements of the law. So, so they, would, they would tithe on these smallest spices, dill and cumin and these other spices. They, they'd go to the temple and they'd bring their little spice bags or however they kept them. they say, I'm tithing a tenth of my dill and a tenth of my cumin while at the same time neglecting love and justice. They wanted everybody to know that they were tithing their smallest possessions. I mean, one pastor said that it'd be like a Christian today pulling up every financial record, all of the accounts that you have, you have lots of accounts, and figuring out the amount of interest that you had on every little account. So for most of us, that's like, you know, under a dollar a year. But it's saying, hey, I'm going to add, I'm going to give $10.03 because I'm giving on the interest. I want everyone to know I'm giving on all that I have. It's It's the littlest detail. That's what the Pharisees were doing, which that's not wrong. If you want to give the three extra cents, that's fine. The issue is that while doing this, while putting on the appearance of, I I care about the smallest detail, they're neglecting the biggest requirements. They're straining out gnats while swallowing a camel. What What a graphic picture. They were unjust. They were merciless. They were unfaithful. They cared about obeying the tiniest aspect of law while neglecting the most clear aspects. And the application question here, am I imbalanced? Am I out of balance? Don't single out the smallest parts of the Christian life that you can obey while neglecting the clearest aspects. I mean, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount made this point clear when when he clarified the intention of the law. It's not about what you do or don't do at the end of the day. It's about the heart behind your doing what you do and don't do. Now, it matters what you do and don't do, but ultimately that's that's not the main focus. The main focus is the heart behind doing what you do and don't do. So you can not do something with a, with, a, with a corrupt heart, and that's worse than doing it. I mean, don't commit adultery, good. Do you look lustfully at another? Bad. Do you, you don't murder, good. Do, do you harbor anger in your heart against your brother? You give generously of your spices, good. Well, do you give generously of your, your time or your money? 
And the point is honoring God with all that we do. And we honor him when our righteousness, our, our good deeds come from a heart that's been changed. And the Pharisees led their lives, they did their good deeds for the approval of others so that others would see them and praise them. And they didn't care about or consider the God who knew their heart, who could see right through their facade, who knew them to be pretenders. And so as, as followers of Christ, we ought to recognize our tendency to have blind spots, areas that may be out of balance. And we ought to be willing to examine ourselves or be open to correction or rebuke by others, not afraid to ask others to speak into our lives and our camels that we are prone to swallow. As followers of Christ, again, the whole point, we're not afraid of being caught because I have nothing to hide. So we can honestly say, speak into my life. Are there things that I'm missing here? Am I out of balance? Fifth and sixth woe, together, grouped them together. We're, we're moving quickly. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate, but the inside it's filthy. Sixth woe, woe to you. You're, you're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly, you're, you're clean, you're beautiful, but inside you're full of corpses, dead people's bones, and filth. You appear outwardly righteous to others, but inside that doesn't match, right? That's the issue. It's hypocrisy. They're pretending. He gives the two powerful illustrations. I thought about the, the, the dried or hardened gunk on the inside of your, your glass, right? or a, a bowl with leftover oatmeal. Right? You know, it's been sat in the sink for a day or two, and it's just, it's hard, and you can't get it clean, or a leftover smoothie in a glass cup. Right? Glass cups don't, don't match this analogy because you can see right through it, but think about a, a not glass cup with old, dry smoothie in it. No one would look at those, that bowl of old oatmeal or old smoothie and say, hey, that's a clean dish. Fill me up some water out of that. You would scrub it and scrub it and put it back in the dishwasher. And in some of your cases, dishwasher, you'd do it three more times before it got clean. But Jesus says, this is what the lives of the Pharisees are like. Their actions, their good deeds are, are spotless on the outside. They act in such a way that everyone knows that they're righteous. They see them doing all the right things, but inside, underneath their actions, they're as dirty and as filthy and wretched as they could be. And then he can, compares them, secondly, to a tomb. Outside, it's shined, it's clean, but inside it's full of stench and stinky, rotting bones, skeletons. Right? Jesus uses this graphic illustration to make the point. They're working hard to maintain external righteousness while neglecting the thing that matters most, the heart. Application question number six, am I clean on the inside? This gets to the issue, the heart of the issue. The solution of Jesus, the aim of the gospel, the goal of the Christian life is not merely external righteousness. That's not the point. There's no form of legalism that can satisfy what God requires. God requires righteousness that comes from the heart, from the inside out. And the dangerous thing about the Pharisees and, and the, the hypocrisy here is that the practitioners know that they're dirty on the inside. They know they're dirty. In fact, no one who puts on a false front of righteousness, this is why I think it's, it's so egregious, no one who puts on a false front of righteousness, no one who lacks consistency like the hypocrites here, who pretends to be one way while underneath is another way, no one lives that way unaware. Do you realize that? The, 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 the fact that you're aware is why you're pretending. 
And so you're intentionally deceiving others with, with a facade of righteousness. That is evil and wrong. The reality is, friend, we are all unclean on the inside, and we're all that way from birth. And the only hope, the only hope is passive, to be cleansed by another from the outside in, to be cleansed by another. And so for the Christian, the question aims to get to the heart of all that we do and say. We must pursue righteousness from the heart. Our aim is to please God who sees and cares about the heart. I'll say more about that in one second. But last, seventh woe. I'm not going to read it, but verses 29 through 36. The seventh woe continues the condemnation and hypocrisy of the scribes by showing their inconsistency. So Jesus focuses specifically on their attitude towards the prophets. So he uses the, 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 the focus, the subject of tombs, and he says, well, we're on the issue of tombs. Look around Jerusalem. You have all kinds of tombs to the prophets. And you've built these elaborate statues, and, and you've made these elaborate memorials to the prophets of old in, in, in order to be able to say, look, we loved the prophets. We're of those who would have listened to the prophets. We wouldn't have done what our fathers did. We've, we've restored the prophets to their place of honor. And Jesus says, by doing that, you have shown that you don't mean what you say because in their midst was the prophet of prophets and he was going to be crucified by them. They were just like their fathers. They were going to shed the blood of the prophets and, and they were going to continue after Jesus was gone, treating the, the apostles that way doing the very thing they wanted to appear not to be doing. They're going to kill Jesus, the Son of God, and Jesus wants them to know they're going to bear their guilt, which leads to the last point, verse 37 and 39, Old Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and, the, and, the, and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together, and yet you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And what we see in this last few verses, we see the heart of Christ towards those who would kill him. We'll get into more interpretations next week. The next couple weeks, we're going to look at chapter 24 because that comes into the role of Israel and judgment and condemnation. But, but here, don't miss the heart of Christ towards those who would kill him. Here is a lament over Jerusalem. And his, his, his desire was for Israel to be saved. Oh, I would have gathered you like a hen and her children I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. And that's the issue Jesus takes. You were not willing. His desire was to save. He came to save, yet they were not willing. They have no excuse. They were not willing. They can't say, oh, your sovereign will, Lord. He says, you were not willing. And as he's, ending the, he's nearing the end of his life, he knows his death, resurrection, and ascension are coming. He tells them, you're not going to see me until I return. This is a reference to a second coming. And the reality was how they view him and respond to him in a second coming. So you're going to see me again, but how you see me is going to depend entirely upon whether or not you repent. That, that's the call. That's the last question of application. Will I repent? Because that's how he ends. That's the note he ends. Even now, in Passion Week, as Jesus is proclaiming these judgments to the Pharisee who would repent, it would all be changed. The Pharisee that humbled himself and, and came to Jesus would be welcomed and given a burden that was easy and light. 
And so the question, will I repent? The point of Jesus' entire ministry, the point of his, this section in chapter 23 is that the point, the solution to hypocrisy is repentance. So that the solution to hypocrisy is repentance. The one speaking here, these harsh words of chapter 23, is the one who would be crucified for the sins of others, who in fact was the only non-hypocrite ever to live. And yet he died in the place of the hypocrite. And the offer here to anyone Anyone here listening, final most important application question is, will you repent? And so reality is, whether you have never repented at all, the call for you is to repent for the first time, to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus and be forgiven and accepted, to, to own yourself as a sinner and to trust in Christ who will make you new. So whether it's the first time or for more of you, You're still guilty. You're still prone to these things and you should repent for the hundredth time. The solution to hypocrisy is repentance. That's not just repentance of non-Christian to Christian. That is repentance as a mark of the Christian life. Your only hope for cleansing, the process of cleansing, is repentance and faith in Christ. And so what I want to do at the end is I I just want to have, I think we have a slide with these seven questions And we're not going to take a long time, but we're just going to take a few moments to just in silence consider these questions. And then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song that's titled, His Mercy is More. And so consider these questions and then we're going to stand and rejoice in the truth that His mercy is more. So let's let's spend a few moments just um, thinking on these questions and then um, we can... We can stand and and sing in response.